the dirty Whitechapel streets of London in 1888. A figure stalked the darkness. It was Jack the Ripper. And there were probably guys selling ice cream, too. I don't know. Um, actually, it was before the big dawn of ice cream, I, I was going to say, when was ice cream invented? Well, I mean, combining milk and cream and sugar goes pretty far back, but modern ice cream may be more recent. Yeah. I don't know. Like, when were the cones invented? I don't know. We'll have to look that up. Yeah. But I'm sure there were people walking around selling treats. Yeah, probably. As hookers got murdered. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, so, welcome back. Miskatonic University's remote education program offering, as a public service podcast, Graphical Literature 209, Graphical Literature in Society and History, a.k.a. the Comics Course. I am your ever vigilant looking out over the city of London, Professor Hamby, along with my ever, uh, what's the opposite of vigilant? Completely freaking blind T.A. Rowan? Not that blind. I have asked you to pick up things in front of you, and it's like it's the big circular red thing. And there's only one circular red thing in the room, and it is one foot from you at, you know, just below eye level, and you're just spinning around like, what? What? I don't know. What? Big Red? Should I go to New Jersey and see if I can find it? No! It's right there! One foot from you! Pick it up! Like, you haven't done the same thing sometimes. I don't think quite that bad. But I've certainly done similar. I I will admit, I have gone looking for something that I literally held in my hand. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that is pretty bad. Anyway... We're talking about uh, Whitechapel, 1888, Jack the Ripper, uh, as seen through Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell's graphic lit classic, From Hell. We got a lot to go over today, so I'm only going to do a chapter today, and this is a bit of a uh, turn for us because (laughs) we just got finished recording the episode talking about lighthearted manga, and that's kind of intentional. I don't want to overwhelm people with this. Now, I do want to talk a little bit about behind-the-scenes stuff. I have recently redone the logo for the comics course to make it a little more friendly to merchandise and stuff. And I will be looking at merchandise soon to put it on so you can have your own comics course t-shirt or coffee mug or, well, probably should put tea in it with whiskey. Um, and we do not stuff like recommend that. that. You do not recommend that? No. Well, I mean, how are they going to become teachers if they don't drink whiskey? Why should they? Because, are, are you degenerating my profession? No. Are you mocking me? I think you're mocking me. I don't know what makes you think that. Because you're laughing while you say <laughs> shit? About why would somebody want to take up my own career court path? Mm-hmm. I think that sounds like mocking. While you run around with a pink-haired fox girl collecting <laughs> mushrooms off the sides of buildings in a pseudo-Germanic state. It, it's run by it's a, in, it's a windmill not a building should we discuss whether or not a windmill is a building <laughs> I think you may have said something somewhat indefensible there just saying uh, let's get back to something wholesome like the murdering of women in the dark oh see that's wholesome to you it's more wholesome woke. than talking to you some days. Just saying. <laughs> Not very woke of you. Just saying. Oh, wow. We're going there now. <laughs> Folks, it's going to be a long day. I don't need your prayers, but I could use your whiskey. <laughs> Feel free to send it. 
Professor Hamby, care of Miskatonic University, Arkham, Massachusetts. <sighs> wow, this is what I get for teaching undergrad classes, folks. <laughs> All right, well, if you're ready <laughs> from L, am I allowed to get started now, good T.A. Rowan? Yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. Oh, my lordy me. So, we open up with a quote from The Stumbling Block, Its Index, by B. Catling, from Bookworks 1990. Now, I had never heard of this, so I had to look it up. Mm -hmm. The Stumbling Block is a book that was printed uh, with basically a bunch of descriptions of a sculpture that doesn't exist. And the goal was to create a book that was nothing but an index of the sculpture, and to make it exist in the minds of the readers, despite the sculpture not actually existing. Interesting. Now, this is clearly an idea that would have appealed to Moore, because this is what Goal is doing. Goal thinks in terms of architecture and sculpture. We spent a whole chapter with him having Netley drive him around London to look at sculptures and architecture. One of the three gods that made up the godhead he had the image of included the Abrahamic architect figure on the left of the illustration. So this idea of putting things in people's minds and things being built from it is very appropriate because that's what he's doing with the persona of Jack the Ripper in killing these women is looking to incite in people a mindset that sets the future in motion, especially of putting women in their place. Now, we also have a cartoon here that was published in London at the time of the Whitechapel murders called The Nemesis of Neglect. And basically, it shows this spectral figure with a knife floating through the night in Whitechapel. And it, it, it is meant to symbolize several things. One, that the police can't catch Jack the Ripper. He's the spectral figure. Two that the conditions in Whitechapel have not come out of nowhere. That these crimes, in many ways, reflect the poverty and the poor conditions available to people, especially women there. And it is important to keep in mind that while uh, things like how women were treated were very much a cultural issue of the time and prevalent problem, there were people who knew that this was a problem that could have been solved and treated better. Mm-hmm. And there was commentary. And here's the little uh, uh, rhyme that went along with it when it was published. There floats a phantom of the slum's foul air, shaping to eyes which have the gift of seeing, into the specter of that loathy lair. Face it, for vain is fleeing. Red hundred, ruthless, furtive, unerect, tis murderous crime. The Nemesis of Neglect. It is published in Punch, um, September 29th, 1888. Illustration by John Tenniel. And as we jump into the story, Chapter 5, The Nemesis of Neglect, we're told that the scene is taking place in Upper Austria, August 1888, in a town, and I may mispronounce this, uh, Brionu. Brionu? Brionu? I don't know how to pronounce Germanic names. But we see in through a window, 
and some guy is doing the Humpty Dance on top of a woman that we find out is his wife. And as she begins to uh, reach her culmination point, a cathedral's doors burst open with a giant flood of blood coating the streets. Damn. Okay. Now, I know what you're going to ask. Was she a virgin? No. That's not the symbolism, folks. And if your mind went there, you have issues. No. The symbolism is that as they have reached their culmination, they have just created a child. She is pregnant. And my German isn't very good. But I know a smattering, and I know some root words from Old English, uh, thanks to some of my undergrad classes. And so I can get little bits along. I mean, she's obviously very disturbed. He's trying to calm her down. But their family name is not used. But all you have to do, frankly, is do a little bit of quick Googling for people, you know, who were born in Austria nine months after August uh, of 1888, and you'll find that a young little Austrian boy named Adolf Hitler was conceived then. Oh. Uh. Uh. <laughs> You're shaking your head. Right, so the the torrent of blood into the streets is the symbolism of what Hitler's going to cause. Yeah. That they've just created... One of the nastiest human beings of the 20th century. Yeah. You know, it's all, you know, he and a couple of others like, you know, Pol Pot and Stalin were kind of in a computation to see who could be the most horrible human beings of the 20th century. Yeah. And um, so here he is coming into existence in the same month that the Whitechapel murders happen. Wow, this was just not a good year for Europe. No. Now, as we go return to London, uh, Eddie Campbell uses this device I really like. And I'm curious about your opinion about the artistic decision. Mm -hmm. So our first picture is of this really nice upper class street. This is where Dr. Gold lives. But it's very fuzzy. Yeah, I like that they made it artistically very distinct from Whitechapel and showing how different it is there. Right. And it's... The architecture is all very nice. It's all drawn in a very realistic style. But it's also a little hazy, like people don't live in the real world. And then they show a street in Whitechapel, where the lines are very dark and very distinct. There's no haze at all. And he's doing that, like, rigid thing he does with his art, unlike with the nicer area where it's paint. Right. And it feels dirtier. And it Mm -hmm. feels visceral. It doesn't feel like that vague impressionistic painting Mm -hmm. and then we get dr goal asleep and we go back to that hazy impressionistic style where everything's soft and relaxed to kind of show it's two completely different worlds right which i really like then we get a woman presumably polly nichols because this chapter is very much about her in a lot of ways and she's sleeping in one of the workhouses where she's tied up with rope to the wall to keep her from falling over Mm mm-hmm Goal awakes in this nice, soft light, stretching his arms. Isn't the world glorious? It's so 
good to be a rich white man in Victorian London. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Polly has the rope taken off the line and falls to the floor as her wake-up call. Yeah. It, it's And this continues for several more scenes. And the symbolism is not subtle. No, it's not. But the artistic decisions behind it are really good. And I really like it. And I think it communicates things well. Mm-hmm. Uh, all the way down to, you know, Polly's assistant in waking up is the guy who cut the rope and is gathering up the rope and doesn't give a damn. While Gull walks into a bathroom and has a maid waiting for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he f- fixes himself at a sink in a mirror she has to go down to a water trough and fix herself up a little bit. Mm-hmm. She eats something that she got from somewhere against a doorway on the street while he sits at a table in a fine suit being served. Mm-hmm. The The parallel between their lives is distinct and continues on until Gull gets out to the cab and meets Netley. Mm-hmm. And, he sa- and Netley says, Ah... Uh, Morning to you, Sir William. Lovely day for it. Aha, it is indeed, Netley. It is indeed. Head for the London Hospital towards Whitechapel Road. Now, tell me, fellow, have you run our prey to earth? And Netley says, well, there's four of them, and they always hang out together, but they don't have a permanent residence. And they're having this chat about the planning of murdering the four horrors of the apocalypse while we see... Uh, Polly, you know, face against the wall, you know, making her living in an alleyway for a few coins. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's a pretty abrupt difference. Now, at the London Hospital, William Gull goes to visit Joseph Merrick, uh, better known to history as the Elephant Man. Mm -hmm. And the art here is a fairly good representation. I should note that we don't know exactly what the Elephant Man's uh, deformities were. They have attempted to take some of his bones and do DNA processing to see if he suffered from something uh, like, I think it's called Prometheus Syndrome. Yeah, that sounds right. But it turns, but in typical Victorian fashion, who were pretty macabre uh, uh, at heart, Mm -hmm. genteel and macabre at the same time, after Joseph Merrick passed away, they bleached his bones and put them on display in the British Museum. Something that people would be appalled by now. Yeah. But was seen as quite natural at the time. Mm-hmm. Because he was a thing of curiosity. Mm-hmm. And that had been done so much that they were not able to recover any useful DNA for testing. Mm-hmm. And it should be noted that he was not very old when he passed away. He was only 28. Damn. And had had a pretty hard life working in carnivals In a freak show where he got the name Elephant Man, a doctor uh, became a good friend of his and put him up at the London Hospital. Uh, Frederick Treves, I think his name was, Sir Frederick uh, Treves, who was a a notable medical man at the time. Mm -hmm. I I did not find any information uh, that documented Dr. Gohl ever meeting uh, Joseph Merrick, who I do not want to refer to as Elephant Man more than necessary, because I think it's kind of diminutive of yeah. him. I mean, he was Joseph Merrick. Well, they're given the name um, of the freak show too. Right, Treat but I don't think I don't think we should continue to use that name. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I use it because there are people who only know it by that. But I would prefer to call him Joseph Merrick. Mm-hmm. And 
Dr. Gohl was a respected medical practitioner of the time. It's perfectly plausible. He met Joseph Merrick. Uh, but I don't have any data to indicate that he was, you know, close to him, as they seem to imply here, for the convenience of the story. And it's implied for the convenience of the story because Alan Moore wanted to add in more of this weird godhead obsession thing from Dr. Gohl. Specifically, uh, there, there's a fairly famous quote from From Hell where Gull says at one point something to the effect of uh, gods are only real in people's minds, but they're very real there. And certainly Gull has this belief that the gods are real in all aspects of one divine godhead entity. And one of those gods he has some kind of fixation on is Ganesh of Indian mythology. And the name Elephant Man has connected the Elephant Man to Ganesh in uh, Dr. Gold's mind. And in fact, he says there are cults in India that watch this man with elephantine deformities, uh, who you can parallel to Joseph Merrick's condition, and that they watch him for movements in his sleep to divine the will of Ganesh. And Dr. Gold is kind of trying to do that with Joseph Merrick here, to look for, through, through Joseph Merrick's deformities the will of God. Now, some of this ties back to some of that weird Egyptian Freemasonry. Freemasons, especially of the Egyptian mystic traditions, saw variations in humanity as expressions of will, of diversity, of divine creation. So, for example, famously, uh, they thought hermaphrodites were sacred and blessed <coughs> with having male and female genitalia. Um... And so, similarly, he's looking at this thing that is a genetically random aberration of humanity. Mm -hmm. um, still very much human, though. And seeing what can he divine of God's will through Joseph Merrick. And it's a pretty cold-blooded thing. Mm -hmm. Now, then we see Gold go to visit Scotland Yard. And he goes to visit the head of the Metropolitan Police, uh, Sir Charles Warren. Now, Charles Warren was a very controversial figure. What he basically does is goes to Sir Charles Warren and says, we're going to do this thing. And Charles Warren's like, not with my blessing, you won't. And because, you know, when it comes to going out and murdering women on the streets, he's like, nope, nope. His whole, job do is, it. his whole job is to stop that kind of thing. Right. And he does not approve of it. But Gahol says, I'm not looking for your permission. I'm just giving you the courtesy of letting you know. And this is blessed by all the right people. So in other words, unless you want to disappear like the whores will, you better get in line, bitch boy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the unstated threat here. Uh-huh. And he's, of course, a high-level Freemason himself. He knows what's at risk. Mm -hmm. He knows what they will do. So he turns a blind eye to it. In reality, uh, the, the actual Sir Charles Warren really did want to catch Jack the Ripper and be tough on crime. And, but it is important to understand when we look back at the press about the police to see what happened in the years leading up. Sir Charles Warren had only been the head of the police for a couple years. He was appointed in 1886, just two years before. And when he first came on board, a lot of people cheered it. He was a military man. 
And they thought he's going to bring military structure back to the police force. I mean, there was a common problem where police drank heavily on duty, especially mm-hmm. the constables. And so he was trying to bring structure to things. He was also seen as a gentleman. In fact, he was well-respected as a sort of gentleman archaeologist. Um, so he, he was greeted with praise at first. However, a couple of things led to very much tarnishing his name by the time the Whitechapel murders came around. Uh, one of them was kind of funny, and one of them was not. The funnier one was the great dog hunt. Now, there was a problem with wild dogs on the streets of London, and there was a problem with many of them being rabid. Rabies was running around like crazy, mm-hmm. and that's a serious problem. So he instituted new rules about dogs in public needed to be on leashes or muzzled. So if you were going to walk a dog alongside you without a leash, it needed to be muzzled. Mm-hmm very reasonable but it it got out of hand and it got crazy and cartoons were published of cops beating muzzled dogs on their owner's stoops to death and it became brutal and the press mocked him perhaps unfairly yeah that definitely sounds a little unfair but this was in combination also with bloody sunday of november 1887 Now, this is a complicated event. It took place in Trafalgar Square, which kind of was where the East End met the West End. It still does to this day. Um, But I don't know how socioeconomically divided the East and West End are these days. Back then, it was like the dividing line between the haves and the Mm have-nots. And so, as a symbolic place of class struggle, it it made sense. Now, 10,000 protesters showed up including a lot of socialists. And as we talked about just a few decades later, um, socialists were seen as so horrible that people supported the Nazis to oppose the socialist communists. Mm -hmm. We talked about that in the 1010. And so while there are 10,000 protesters, an additional 30,000 people showed up just to watch the demonstrations. So that's 40,000 people to start with. Feed into this, they rounded up 2,000 cops and 500 reservists to try to keep this crowd in check. We're talking about less than 5% the size of the crowd. Now, they, they talked about turning on water cannons and all kinds of things, but Warren, to his credit, uh, wanted to try to end this peacefully and disperse the crowd. It did not happen. There's actually a lot of debate about who started what and who got it off worse. Some news reports were that the police were much more badly injured than anybody protesting. Others said the opposite. But regardless, a lot of people were injured and it is a major black mark on Sir Warren's career as the police commissioner. And not the last one. Just a week later, there were more violent protests. So... This was not good for him. And to not help things anymore, he answered to the head uh, 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 of the home of the Homeland Office, uh, a guy named Matthews, and they didn't get along mm-hmm. at all. Warren was actually a liberal, and Matthews was very much a conservative, and they fought publicly and privately. 
So by the time the Ripper murders came along and people began criticizing the police, uh, Warren was just in the middle of things. Now, some people will ask, well, why did he hire Warren if he didn't get along with him? He didn't. His predecessor did. His predecessor basically hired Warren and then left office almost immediately after. Mm. But by the time the Ripper murders came along, it meant that Warren was being mocked by the public and didn't really have the support of his boss either. So it put him in a very difficult position. As the story moves along, we see the Four Horrors re-meeting at the Britannia. They declared themselves the Four Horrors of the Apocalypse. And we see Polly meeting with Nettles. Nettles has bought her a pretty black bonnet. And says, you should go out and wear it tonight. And, you know, my gentleman will want to see you in it. Now, we go back to this soft, almost watercolor-like style in black and white, probably using charcoals. And Gull is visiting an Egyptian sarcophagus. He goes to the museums. He goes to see his wife. He gets a nice meal. He cleans up. And then he heads out with Netley into the town. Now, historically, we know that Polly Nichols uh, she needed a place to sleep for the night. And she famously said to somebody uh, when she was told she didn't have enough money for staying at the lodging house that night, quote, I've had my lodging money three times today and I've spent it. Meaning she earned her lodging money, however she did it. Maybe she did some odd jobs at people's houses. Maybe she did some cleaning or mending. Maybe she hoard. We don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, but she spent it probably on drink. And she said, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now. So she got a bonnet from somewhere that day. And it is a popular theory that somebody gave her the bonnet to help identify her in the dark. On the streets. Mm. Um, She was known for being an attractive woman. DOS, for those who don't know, was basically sleep money for a lodging house or something. And... She went out where she was then picked up by Gull and Netley. Now, before they pick her up, we see Gull taking laudlum, a very powerful tranquilizer, and painting grapes with it. We saw him eating grapes earlier, and now we see him offering poly grapes after they pick her up. Now, grapes are an interesting little thing here. Um, Grapes would have been very expensive in Whitechapel in England at the time. I don't believe grapes grow natively in England without a fair bit of effort, but they grow in the Mediterranean, certainly. Yeah, very little things grow in England, honestly. Potatoes and carrots. Yep. One of the reasons those are old staples of the English diet. Mm-hmm. Um, but grapes are also a symbol of festivities and celebrations. And to Goal, that's what this is. Goal is celebrating. This is a party. He gets to go out and build the future by killing some women. Rock on! And, you know, the, the, the horror, the somber horror of the cold-blooded way that he and Netley pick her up to murder her contrasted with, hey, have a grape, let's party. And clearly it's laudlum so that it will knock her out so that even, you know, the sick older goal can kill her in her decapitated... Decapitated. Her... her, her, her compromised state Mm -hmm. Um, 
it's horrible. And it, it makes it worse, you know, knowing that thinking about the symbolism of the grapes uh, as, you know, something for festivals and parties and and rites and, and invokes the idea of Dionysius, who in Greek mythology was the favored of the nymphs that ran the wells and eventually became the Zagrian figure that took the place of Zeus as the embodiment of knowledge in the universe and would be part of that sort of godhead. And that's what Gull is trying to invoke here, this idea of these uh, 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 divine knowledge celebrations, that he's tapping into divine knowledge and is a servant of the true God. And these grapes are a gift for his sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And then it gets creepier. Ah, great. Because why wouldn't it get creepier still, right? Mm-hmm. So he talks to her in the carriage. And I won't spoil the dialogue, but it's interesting. But then they pull up as the laudlum's kicking in. And Joseph Merrick is in a little garden he tended. Now, I find it a little implausible that... Joseph Merrick would be outside at night tending his garden, but he is here, and he's wearing a face covering, which we know Joseph Merrick often did wear when he was in public to avoid, you know, scenes, but he's he's picking flowers, roses, and we see Polly Nichols' slack face as the laudlum is kicked in, and Gull reaches around to strangle her and put his thumbs on her cheeks. Now, we do know from the inquest that Polly Nichols did have bruises on her face and throat, like she was somehow manhandled that way. Gold gets behind her in a very sort of sexually suggestive pose while he strangles her, and they wait, and he's waiting for inspiration. He's waiting for Ganesha's blessing through the actions of Joseph Merrick. And as Joseph Merrick picks the flower, kills it, Gold takes that moment to kill Polly Nichols while watching him. Oh. Um, it's 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 messed up. Yeah, messed up on so many levels. Um, then they take her to a location. They put her out on the road. Gold cuts up her throat, and then it's clear the intent was to have Netley do some of it, but Netley is freaked out by it. So... As he should be. Goal just decides to do the incisions himself and cut open her womb and tear things out of her stomach. And then she's just left there, just laying on the ground where she's found by people. Now, there is a little bit of deviation from history here in that when they find her, she's clearly laid out and they know that she's a person. Uh, In fact, Uh, when she was originally discovered in history, they didn't have a good look at her because of poor lighting, and they thought somebody had just left like a a cover, a cloth out of some kind in the road or next to the road. Mm -hmm. They didn't realize there was a person laying there at first. Now, the next part that happens is in history. Two men find her, run off to find the police. In the meantime, the police actually show up just on their regular rounds and find her. So there's kind of multiple parties that found her independently mm-hmm. there. And then a big crowd gathers because it was very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Now, initially, they call in a Dr. Llewellyn, a local physician who acted... Because at the time, you basically just called any local physician to determine cause of death. The coroner is the one that, unlike in our medical shows, would call the inquest and oversee a political process. 
but just a doctor would determine cause of death. So he basically looked at her and said, slit throat, all right, I'm going home. And got my money? All right, paid me, thanks. Say thanks, bye, going back to dinner. And then after they start checking out her body and find all these horrible things, they called him back and said, motherfucker, there's more for you to look at here. This is fucked up. The fact that they were so casual about the fact that he wanted to get his job done as quick as possible is right. kind of disturbing. Now, he's also a potential source for a lot of confusion that's happened about the Ripper murders. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it, it is often taken as absolute fact by people that the Ripper murders were so precise. Only somebody with great knowledge could have done it. And this led into the investigation of butchers and doctors and all kinds of other things. Um while Dr. Llewellyn did make claims that the cuts were very precise and had to have been somebody with medical training, he also had a history of not being very reliable. Mm-hmm. And other uh, uh, investigators later on did not always agree with his estimations. Mm-hmm. In fact, many of them thought that the cuts were very random and haphazard. And some people have said, well, this is an argument for different people being the Ripper, and we'll get into that when we come to it in Alan Moore's From Hell here. Um, But there is reason to say that maybe Llewellyn just wanted it to look like it was very precise. Mm -hmm. In fact, he milked it for personal advantage promoting this theory. Mm -hmm. Quite a bit. So, in the real history, take it with a grain of salt. But here... It has its foundation in being that a medical man actually did it. Mm-hmm. And while we have these gruesome scenes, in fact, this one comical scene of somebody who lifts up her petticoats and then falls backwards on the ground in disgust at what he sees, meanwhile, we return to this soft, uh, lighted, gentle drawing effect where Gold goes home and just relaxes. It's like, oh, all right, time to chill. Uh, it's been a long day. I'm tired now. Killing horses is hard work. Uh, it's pretty horrible. Yeah. So that is from hell. Chapter. Oh, chapter was it? I want to say five. That was chapter five. Yes. So next up, we will meet in chapter six, Frederick Aberline. All right. Any parting thoughts? Before uh, we leave folks be on this 35-minute mark. That was disgusting. It was disgusting? You're welcome. I know you love true crime. <laughs> Don't deny it. Are you going to deny it? No. You, you love how repulsive it is, don't you? No. You sure? I'll get into this. You don't want to get into this? No. You don't want to be called on it? No, I don't want to be interrogated at the end of the podcast. Wow, you want me to do it at the beginning? No. <laughs> it's not at all. But you do love true crime. Yes. And you do love the macabre. Yes. Case closed. <laughs> Keep reading comics, folks. We'll see you next time.